The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. Continue to worship our great God by hearing from His Word. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open to the book of Hebrews, to Hebrews chapter 2. We continue to make our way through this excellent, excellent book. We're looking at Hebrews 2, 5 through 9 this morning. Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. Let's give our attention as God Himself speaks to us in His eternal Word. Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 9. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This concludes the reading of God's holy and inspired word. May God now be pleased to add his blessing to it. Have you ever seen one of those optical illusions? And one of those pictures where one of two pictures can emerge. So there's one that is pretty popular that you're probably familiar with. And that's a picture where it could either be an old lady or a young lady in a hat. Or there's those dots where at first you don't see anything, but if you just focus in on it, then a picture emerges. And sometimes it depends on whether or not you're right-brained or left-brained. Or, I'm not sure if they still do this. I know they did it when I was growing up as a kid. Those movies where you'd wear those 3D glasses, and the movie would be in 3D if you had those glasses on. Well, the reason I bring this up is because this helps to illustrate something of what our passage is teaching us today. Where you're looking around and one of two pictures can emerge. You could see the world around you and see it just going down into chaos. I wonder if Jesus is even reigning. Thinking we need to take control now and figure out how uh, the church can come back into control of things. Or you can look around and you can see Jesus as ruling and reigning. And whether or not you see Jesus as ruling and reigning, even though you see everything around descending into chaos, depends on what spectacles you're looking through, what glasses you're looking through. Whether it's the glasses of the flesh, or the glasses of faith. And our passage here today helps us to see the proper perspective, to look through the eyes of faith. And even though we look around us and we see uh, evil, injustice, sin, abuse, hatred, uh, even 
division within the church and wars and wonder where is Jesus in all of this? Leading to anxiety, depression, fear, sleepless nights, idolatry, looking to other things to try to fulfill us. This passage says, even though you do not literally see Jesus, let me give you the proper spectacle so that you may see Him. And it's being spoken to Christians who are going through a hard time. Professing believers who are doubting Christianity. Professing believers who are struggling to persevere in the faith, who need to persevere. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, here, put these on. And let me show you Jesus. And so we're going to see two sights that we must see by faith in order to endure this world. And the first is the world to come. It's a world we don't see now, though we get a taste of it, as I'll show. But we don't see now. But we know by faith is coming. And then the second is the exaltation of the Son of Man. So those are the two things we must see in order to endure this world. So first, the world to come. I look at verse 5 again. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. So by starting out by saying for, he's continuing his thought from the previous passage. I know it's been a couple of weeks, but to summarize, chapter 1 was talking about why Jesus is superior to the angels. And the reason he brings that up is because of what he goes on to say in chapter 2, which is the angels spoke something, uh, namely the ministry of the law, the old covenant, and those who didn't hear received a just punishment. Well, now we have Jesus who has spoken something. He's superior to the angels. And if a just punishment was given to those who rejected what angels said, how much more the one who is superior to angels? namely Jesus. And that message spoken by our Lord was attested to by those who heard the apostles. And God, the Holy Spirit, bore witness to what they heard through signs and miracles and wonders, something that only God can do. Don't reject this message, the author of Hebrews is saying. The message of the Gospel, that Christ has come assuming our humanity. That He lived that life of righteousness we could not live so that we would have a righteousness not of our own by which we may stand before God, complete and perfect, and taking our death penalty for us so that we may be forgiven of all our sins. We bear them no more. And he was resurrected, raised from the dead, is seated at the right hand of the Father from where He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Don't reject that message. But in saying this stuff, the, the author says that Jesus is also better, so he's continuing his thought, because it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. Jesus is better because it wasn't to angels that the world to come was subjected to, but to Jesus. So we need to ask, well, what is this world to come? 
Well, we get a hint by what the author of Hebrews says, of which we are speaking. In other words, we have been talking about I have been talking about it, and I am still talking about it. Well, what has he been talking about? He's been talking about the realm of angels, of course that would be heaven, talking about Christ being seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. That would be heaven. And then in this chapter, he talks about Christ being crowned with glory and honor. And then in verse 10, he speaks about Christ bringing many sons to glory. So the world to come is heaven. The world to come is the glory that is to be revealed in us. And that is what he has been talking about here, the new heavens and the new earth. And we see this in other places in Scripture. Sometimes it's not called the world to come. Sometimes it's synonymously called the age to come. As Scripture represents there being two worlds or two ages. Those are synonymous. So, for example, in Ephesians 1, 20-21, it says that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. We are living in this present age, which is described as evil. Paul says in Galatians 1.4, Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. So Jesus gave himself to deliver us from an age, from a world described as evil. This creation versus that of the new creation, that, that, is which, that which is to come. So there's two ages. There's this age, and then there's the age to come. That is heaven, the new heavens and the new earth. But we get a taste of it now. Because Hebrews will go on to talk about this. It says in Hebrews 6, 4-5, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the world of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. So some have tasted the powers of the age to come. We get a taste of the age to come in the here and now. But how? Well, what experience matches up most with what's being said here? Sharing in the Holy Spirit, tasting the goodness of the Word of God. Well, it's in our worship service when we gather together in the Lord's Day. And this makes sense given what else Hebrews says. Hebrews 12 says that we have come to Mount Zion. Have come means that we have arrived there. And what is this Mount Zion? Well, it's saints of old in worship. Angels in worship. Well, what does that describe? It describes that world to come. The world to come is an eternal Sabbath. It's an eternal worship service where we're gathered with angels and all of God's people worshiping God forever. Where do we get a taste of that? That age to come. Well, it's in our gathering in the here and now. 
And this is why, beloved, we need the eyes of faith to see this. Do you believe that there is an age to come? Do you believe that this life, as hard as it is, is short, fleeting, and temporary? Do you believe that your true home is in that age to come, in eternity, in heaven? And that is what you will experience for the overwhelming majority of your existence. There's that song of Amazing Grace, when we've been there 10,000 years. You know how many lifetimes that is? The world may not even be that old. Or how about this? A billion years. That's going to happen. And after we've been there a billion years, I don't know exactly how it's going to be, but do you think we'll even remember this life? This 80-year life? What's a billion years compared to 80 years. But that home, that world to come, is going to be the overwhelming majority of our existence. When I ask if you believe this, maybe a better question is, does this truth carry more weight in your heart than the things of this world? How are you able to let go of the things of this world because you know that there is a world to come that lasts forever and ever? And do you see with the eyes of faith what is going on here in our worship? You know, on the surface, it seems boring. It lacks entertainment. The same guy that, who knows what he's babbling every week to us. He doesn't even pronounce words right all the time. It's not fun or thrilling. It's not as thrilling as my favorite activity. What happens when we see the real picture with the spectacles of faith? The God of the universe is meeting with us here. He is speaking to us through the preaching of the Word. He is in our midst singing with us, as Hebrews 2.12 goes on to say. Is there anything that compares to that? There's nothing that compares to that. We are getting a taste of the world to come. Of course, it's okay to enjoy the things of this world. We thank God for that. But nothing should compare to that age to come of which we are getting a taste now. If this world is more important and thrilling, oh, then we need an adjustment to our spiritual vision. We need the spectacles of faith to see this. There is a world to come. And let that be weightier than anything in this life, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not even worth to be compared to the glory that is to come. And he's not saying, get over your sufferings or nothing. He's just saying, as weighty as your sufferings are in this life, here's something that's even weightier. That is what is to come. 
We need the eyes of faith to see that, to endure this world. A second sight that we must see by faith in order to endure this world is the exaltation of the Son of Man. So if the world to come was not subjected to angels, then to whom was it subjected? The author answers by quoting Psalm 8 in verses 6 through 8 of our passage. It says, It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So the author of Hebrews answers that question, to whom was this world to come subjected, by quoting Psalm 8. And by the way, just for your encouragement, if you are one of those people that says, well, it says somewhere in Scripture, doesn't it? It's actually biblical. It's right here. Or it says somewhere. But this is a quote that comes from Psalm 8. Now, psalm 8 is a psalm about mankind, about creation, about God's majestic name through the works of creation. But the question is, who is the psalmist referring to when he says, Son of man, or man? Well, obviously it refers to Jesus, as Hebrews 2.9 will go on to reveal. However, it also seems to be broader and refers to man in general, to humankind, uh, because it is a creation psalm referring to the care of man. And God cares for more than just Jesus. He cares for all his creation. In fact, in Psalm 8, when it talks about God putting all things under uh, his feet, which is an, idi- an idiom for giving him dominion, um, not just to stomp on stuff, but to give him dominion, it includes this in Psalm 8. These are the things that uh, were given dominion uh, to a man. The beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the creatures in the sea. Well, this is exactly what we read in Genesis 1. When God says, have dominion, these are under your dominion. It's the same thing. So the question then is, is it referring to man, the humanity represented by the first man, Adam, or is it referring to Jesus? And the answer is yes. That means both. Psalm 8 can legitimately be spoken of man, humans, because to them was given dominion over the work of God's hands in creation. And we also see that that God cares for all men. Psalm 145 says, The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. And this is especially the case with regards to man. The psalm that says in Psalm 8, When I consider the vast heavens, the moon, the stars, all that you have made, what is man that you care for him? The universe is so vast, so great, so glorious. I saw this the other day. I'm not sure if you've seen this. There's, there's a video. And it's, um, it starts out by, by zooming in on a woman's face who's just laying in a yard. I think it's at the Google headquarters in Southern California. And then it starts to zoom out. And it keeps zooming. It keeps zooming. It shows uh, the, the United States. And it shows the world. And it shows all these galaxies. And it just keeps zooming. It's one galaxy after another, after another, after another, after another. And it just shows how small we are. That's what the psalmist is saying here. What is man? That you are mindful of him. When I consider all that you have made, Without the, the, 
the light pollution back then, when I consider this, what is this clump of dirt that you care for him? And yet God has given him dominion over all things. But not only was this present world or age given in subjection to man, so was the age to come. The new creation. This is what Hebrews 2.5 says. Hebrews 2.5 is talking about the world to come, given to man, and then uses Psalm 8 as proof for that. Now how does the Hebrew writer get that from Psalm 8 when it's speaking about this creation? Well, how the Hebrew author arrives at this conclusion is that Psalm 8 implies this by saying, man is crowned with glory and honor. Man was for a little while made lower than the angels. The implication is what? That this is temporary. That man was to be crowned with glory and honor. That man was not to continue in his existence, but was to be exalted even above the angels. In Psalm 2, 5, or Hebrews 2.5 is saying, here's an infallible conclusion from this. It was entrusted to man to bring about this age to come. And that, go, that goes back to the covenant of works with Adam. Adam was not to remain as, in his perpetual state, but was to, as Jesus says, do this and live, gain eternal life. And eternal life is more than just how long it is. It's a quality of life. It's glorification. It's the new heavens and the new earth apart from any corruption. And we see that even in the fact that what happened when man fell into sin? Well, not only was he punished, all of creation got cursed. His sin affected all of creation. This is why Fido dies. Uh, this is why there's things like CWD, chronic wasting disease. This is why there's natural disasters that plague the earth. Man brought a curse upon this world. And now he's returning to the dust. Rather than being exalted to above, he now returns to the dust in shame. Rather than being crowned with glory and honor, he returns to the ground from which he was taken. But it was entrusted to him that if he would have obeyed, he would have not only been crowned with glory and honor, not, not the glory of God, but glorified as we say. And included in that to exalt the creation to beyond the possibility of corruption to the, to the new heavens and the new earth, the age to come was subjected to man in that covenant of works. But we know how it played out. He disobeyed. So rather than getting eternal life and rest, he received death and harsher labor. So how can Psalmate then speak about man being crowned with glory and honor when the psalm was written after man had blown it? Well, this is why it's also about Christ. In fact, Christ, the Son of God, had to become a son of man, had become a true human in order to fulfill what was first entrusted to man in that covenant of works. He had to become a man 
in order to do this. And he did everything that should have been done. That's why we see him in the wilderness being tempted by the devil to eat. Just as the first Adam was tempted by the devil to eat, so was the Son of Man. Except his was a much more difficult temptation. It wasn't in a lush garden while full, but in the opposite of a garden, in a wilderness while empty, having not eaten for 40 days. And then he also fulfilled the punishment of the covenant of works. The day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Christ died in our place, taking the wrath of God, fulfilling the whole law, fulfilling all righteousness for us so that we would have a righteousness not of our own by which we may stand before God. And Christ has fulfilled it all. He's been raised from the dead, crowned with glory and honor. And as Hebrews 2.10 says, He brought us many sons to glory by His work. It's by trusting in the work of Christ alone, all His merit, all His doing alone, that we are crowned with glory and honor. And of course, Christ receives a distinct glory and honor. He is by nature God. He did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptying Himself. That is, He assumed humanity. And He became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And that is why the Father has exalted Him and given Him the name above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every name may, or every knee may bow and every tongue confess to the glory of God, the Father. He was on a rescue mission. He assumed our humanity. He took our penalty. He did the things we should have done. And He received His people according to that covenant of redemption before time began. And as uh, the second half of verse 8 goes on to say, now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. So he truly is sovereign over all. Everything is in subjection to him. But why is that so hard to believe? Here's why it's hard to believe. We don't see it yet, do we? And that is what verse 8 goes on to acknowledge. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. When we look at the world around us, we consider the suffering, the evil, the great injustice that goes on. If we're honest, the own evil in our own hearts, why do I keep doing the things that I don't want to do? Why am I not further along than I had hoped to be? When we see tyrannical governments rising, our own nation filled with evil, abortions on demand and celebrated up to birth, kids dying, and even the church being a mess, we say, yep, we definitely don't see all things in subjection to Him with our eyes. So how can we say that all things are in subjection to Him when we do not see that, when we don't experience that. Well, verse 9. But we see Him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He may taste death 
for everyone. So we look around. We see great rebellion against Christ. Evil running amok. Things in chaos. The effects of the curse still in force. Death and disease. We still bury even believers. But the author goes on to say that while we do not see the things in subjection to Him, we see Him. The issue is what we are looking at. Are we looking at the things in this world still running muck? Or are our eyes fixed on Him? And what do we see about Him? Well, we see Him crowned with glory and honor. But how is it that we see this when we don't see Him with our physical eyes? But instead only the suffering and evil in this world. Well, it is only with the eyes of faith that we see this. It's because of what has been proclaimed to us in the Gospel as witnessed by many, testified to by those who heard and saw, verified by various miracles of the Spirit, written down for us in the Scriptures today. Christ conquered death. He was raised from the dead. He is seated at God's right hand. He ascended into heaven. He is reigning on His throne until all enemies are made a footstool for His feet and He is coming back. And the final enemies, is still the effects of the curse, death, will be defeated. And the way this is put in our verse, it's a bit confusing because from the original Greek, it's complex. The book of Hebrews is the most difficult Greek to translate. So, so when somebody's in seminary, a seminary student, the first thing you do is you translate the book of 1 John because that's the easiest Greek. And then you go through Paul's epistles. And then you get to the book of Hebrews. That's the most advanced, difficult Greek to translate. And so... Uh, the sense is this, but we see him, namely Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, so that because of the grace of God, he may taste death for all, but who has been crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. That's the sense of, uh, of the verse. So because of the message declared to us in the gospel, we believe that Christ has defeated death. Because he suffered the curse, he's been exalted on high. And this tasting death is just an idiom for experiencing it himself. He drank that cup dry for us so that we would not even taste a drop of it that is of the wrath of God. When it says that he tasted death for all, it does not mean every single individual who has, is, and will live. Uh, when we read all in Scripture, we have to interpret it in light of all of Scripture. All doesn't always mean all. So, for example, Mark 1.5 says that all Judea and Jerusalem are coming to John the Baptist to be baptized. Uh, but we know that that's not literally true because the Pharisees and Sadducees did not come to him to be baptized. Uh, so all does not always mean every single individual who has ever lived. Uh, rather, we need to take all of Scripture into account and see 
passages such as Revelation 5.9, which says that Jesus did not die for all people, but purchased by his blood a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So when he purchased by his blood, that is when he died for a people from all people, uh, it doesn't mean all people. Saying from means it's a part from the whole. So considering that, including Jesus saying he doesn't pray for the whole world, but only those given to him by the Father, uh, when we when we look at all here, this is the one dying for the whole, for all the people given to him. The gospel is available to all. Whoever, whosoever will may come. There's the gospel goes out indiscriminately. But only those given to Christ, as he says in John 6, will come to him. And none of those will be lost. So when Scripture says he tasted death for all, it's comparing one for the whole group. But the amazing thing is that he is the one who tasted death for us, that we would never taste it. That is of the wrath of God. He suffered the curse and wrath of God to deliver us from it. He was made a little while lower than the angels so that he may experience this for us. And he has entered that age to come as our forerunner, bringing us many sons to glory. So while we do not yet see this or experience it, we have to put on the spectacles of faith through the proclamation of the gospel. And believe that these are that this is the case. These are the spectacles we look through as we endure much hardship and suffering in this life. We believe that there is an age to come of which we get a taste now. That there is a glory revealed that will be revealed to us that far outweighs the suffering of this life. And with the glasses of faith on, we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor seated at God's right hand, interceding for us, in control, working out all things for the good of those who love Him who are called to His purpose, waiting in heaven for us to gladly welcome us when we pass from this age and into that glorious and eternal age to come, which by faith we ourselves eagerly wait for. With these glasses on, beloved, May we endure the hardship of this life, knowing that this life is fleeting and will soon pass, but that eternal age to come lasts forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us to believe these things, that Jesus indeed is our Lord and Savior, crowned with glory and honor, bringing us to glory, even though yet we don't see or experience it. Adjust our spiritual eyesight, Father, that we may believe, that we may endure, that we may trust and have joy in this life and especially in the life to come. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.